0: me layman pascal as you know the integral stage interview project has many tentacles and one of them is the meta podcast where we podcast podcasters broadcast broadcasters and generally dig in a bit wherever people are trying to bring forth higher deeper and more transformative perspectives through online media today i'm surfing the yin-yang waves of conversational jazz with taryn rosenthal and lucas wolf from the apricot jam podcast hi guys welcome thanks hey First, I got to say, I have no problem with the name Taron, but Lucas Wolf sounds exciting. Like a moral espionage character from American TV. Like, I wish. Like Wolf stars in Edgar
1: the Wolf. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in another life. Yeah. I used to be in television and film, but I was behind the camera, so it's not that exciting. Nice.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I've got this little like interviewer voice in my head that says things like, most of your audience doesn't know these guys. Why don't you give some framing? How did yeah. they meet? And why is it called apricot jam? Mm-hmm. But I know you guys covered this stuff in your intro, like mini podcast episode. So why don't you tell people where they can hear that? And then we can talk about something else.
2: Okay. That's great.
1: <laughs> right, currently we're out on Spotify. Um We're trying to branch out to Apple and all that stuff, but there's been some recent updates with Apple, so that's getting harder and harder. But, you know, Spotify is solid and reliable, so find us there. It's the Apricot Jam.
0: Terrific. Uh, Well, you guys came onto my radar after my pal and or colleague Brad Kirshner told me he really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, so oh. I tuned into that episode. And the, the very first thing I hear in that episode is like a mumbling voice saying, I don't know anything about Brad. Why are we putting <laughs> Brad on the air? <laughs> and I got to tell you, I think that's a great opening. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it was a risk. But I'm glad and, it paid off. And it leads me to the question, like, what do you guys think is the right aesthetic for, you know, emerging improvisational meta level online stuff? Like, is that What mood are we going for? Should we be more tidy and professional or more like loose and ragged and amateurish and realities interpenetrating-y?
2: I mean, I think there's lots of space for lots of different expressions of how that dialogue, trilogue, quadrilogue, tetralogue, whatever you want to (laughs) have it be, um, is going to unfold. I think for us, you know, we're kind of just playing fast and loose. With all of it, though, interested in a little bit more production, maybe than some of our compatriots are, uh, but definitely in terms of, of the like the way that we want to relate to each other and the space and kind of the uh, you know, for some folks, I think casual can feel threatening because it seems a little too unbounded. But I, what we're really hoping is that the space is like sitting in the park or having coffee or having a beer or whatever beverage you like to have when you're just kind of like shooting the shit with folks and that that ease of interaction can hopefully be something that catalyzes kinds of engagement that maybe in a more formal atmosphere might be harder to harder to have a harder time emerging, I think is how I want to mm-hmm. say
1: that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, so far at least it's um, it's exemplary of our relationship, you know, this is how we interact, we talk deep and we goof around and I mean it may evolve which is, we're totally open to that we, you know, we'll see what the the analytics say but uh, and the, and the responses and comments and all that stuff but like, you know, so far the best thing we can do out of the gate is be genuine, true to ourselves and I feel like you know, since I'm the one doing all the editing, I kind of have a little bit of uh, more say in it, <laughs> but you know, we definitely uh, I definitely run it by turn before we put it to air. But, um, you know, it's a nice way for me, at least, because like I mentioned right before we started recording, I, this is what I, I did a little bit of this before, you know, my second life in Chinese medicine. So it is kind of like a little bit of like playtime for me, too. So, I mean, it's a little self-indulgent, but um, I think it's working so far. And like I said, we'll we'll see where it goes. You know, I think okay. yep. so far we, we we have gotten some pretty intense deep conversations. So at least the format is, you know, bearing fruit. So
0: right. So it's eliciting the quality of stuff that you're looking for. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean uh, we I've do. Heard we you guys do.
0: give a shout out for um feedback a couple of times, including mm-hmm. on your little intro thing. Um, and I know it's new, but have you heard any so far?
1: <laughs> um locally, but I I, I haven't seen Maybe we haven't been so explicit about where exactly, Taryn. What do you think?
2: Well, I don't know that the first episodes actually had our email address for the Uh podcast. Derek, I I was a little bit behind in terms of actually getting my act together to get said email address. So that's in the newer show notes. Uh, The only feedback that I've gotten, at least, has come from people that I personally know Who reached out to me, or I saw and we had a conversation, you know, sent me a Facebook message, something like that. And I don't know whether it's that folks don't want to bring the hammer or whether their their feedback is genuinely entirely positive, but thus far the feedback has been um, that people are enjoying what they're hearing, that they're appreciating. And and this has actually kind of been universal in terms of what I've heard, right? Um, that they're appreciating that there's a a way that, and they used Brad's episode to point to this, that the discourse, especially, you know, kind of where Brad is coming from, for some folks is at a level of abstraction that might feel a little bit opaque um, in terms of folks that I know that are listening to it. And they have appreciated that they felt like if they heard that, maybe they would think that they couldn't understand it. But in listening to the conversation, they actually realized that they could totally understand all of the things that were being talked about, and that they really enjoyed being able to enter into a space where maybe the language, or the modeling, or, you know, even some of the, the facts, so to speak, of what the conversation is or was about, were foreign to them, but they left feeling like they actually had learned some things in a way that was useful. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a wide variety of people's experiences, but this is the one that's gotten reported to me on a few occasions. So Mm -hmm. that's heartening to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my, uh, my experience and
0: my take on it as well. Like uh, I kind of a background where there's a lot of people who are writing books and giving lectures and also communicating by Facebook and tweet. And it's not only that you, have a hard time unpacking the really high level conversation sometimes, but also emotionally, you don't know where a person's coming from when you just read a thing that they wrote. You can, mm-hmm. you can like project so much shit onto that. Yeah. But when you hear them in a conversation with another human being, you get this other saying you're like, Oh, this is a person. <laughs> they have mm-hmm. some ideas and some understandings. I get it.
1: <laughs> and yeah. I don't have
0: to track all of
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, I also want to say the way uh, Taryn's speech style is great. I think he Mm -hmm. really, um, the way he intonates and pauses, sounds very supportive and pregnant with pondering.
1: (laughs) Yes, I feel the same.
0: (laughs) Uh, So you guys told me you're in uh, North Carolina and New York. Uh, Where did you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up in Pennsylvania, like in Amish country near Lancaster, Hershey area. And um, was uh, always afraid of the big city. And it was like, well, because we called it the city, right? <laughs> like, especially New York specifically. But um, then I um, eventually, you know, wanted to get into TV and film. So I, you know, had to face the demon and moved to Philadelphia. And that was a big jump for me. And then um, did that for a while. Uh, did the indie film world for a while. Uh, which was a trip. It was really cool. Got to meet some really amazing people, learned some cool life lessons, but then had sort of like, um, you know, that early twenties kind of got to know who I am Got to figure that out. Move, um, move to Japan for a year. And then when I came back, I wanted to get dive deeper back into the film and move to New York city. And then the recession happened, decided I wanted to change careers and decided to go to Chinese medicine, oddly enough. But, um, And God, like 10, 11 years later, here we are. Taryn?
2: I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, and actually lived in New York for a few years right out of high school. Started off going to NYU's Tisch School of the Arts and then bailed on that to spend more time dancing, both in clubs and also as a person who was (laughs) working on making dances as a performative venture. And then I bounced around. I lived in San Francisco and Boulder, Colorado, and was back in Atlanta. I I finished undergrad in my late 20s at Naropa University, right at the point where they were shifting from being the Naropa Institute um, to being Naropa University. I don't know how much autobiographical information we really want to get into. I mean, I'm happy to babble, but you know basically bounced around, did a lot of different kinds of things in terms of you know movement studies and body work and other types of healing modalities and spiritual inquiry and you know eventually also my my spiritual pursuits were non paid full time work, and so I got out of working in a capacity that I really enjoyed and had woke up one morning to realize that I had a career as a a caterer, you know, operations manager, event manager, that I really, to put it bluntly, could not stand and was taking up most of my life. And that somehow I had like flipped the script in the exact opposite of way that I had intended to, right? Like the intention was, I'm going to like, have a job that's flexible so I can really focus on the spiritual work that I'm doing. You know, when I need to travel, I'll be able to travel. Like it worked for a while. And then somehow, you know, I was like caught in this negative feedback loop of just like working in a profession that if you have ever catered, you might know definitely has a way of increasing the volume on misanthropy, which I didn't really need any help with that at that time in my life. So years before I had asked my primary teacher, he was an acupuncturist before he got involved in the spiritual work that I was doing with him. If he thought I should go to acupuncture school and he categorically told me, no, do what you're doing. Right. And then at that moment, when I woke up realizing that I really hated my career, I asked him again and he was like, that's the best idea you've ever had. (laughs) So I kind of shook my head and dusted myself off and uh, was like, okay. So I enrolled in the my criteria for going to graduate school were that I was not willing to go into debt, and that I had to keep working because I needed to make money. So I found um, in Sugar Grove, North Carolina, a low-residency program at this place called Zhengdao Classical School of Chinese Medicine, or School of Classical Chinese Medicine. Forgive me, Zhengdao. That was, you know, one week a month four years. The price at that point was around thirty-five grand um for the whole program and i was like okay i hope it's good cuz <laughs> that's where i'm going turned out it was a it was a really good program and i'm yeah. incredibly what, fortunate and grateful
0: what was this spiritual work
2: you keep referencing mm. <laughs> so this this is a rabbit hole i don't know how much time we want to spend going down but i was a an initiate on a brazilian syncretic medicine tradition called the santo daimi for about 20 years and spent about 13 years um, in a leadership role. I started a, with a group of friends, started a community in North Carolina. So led ceremonies in that community for many so years. They're, they're working with the ayahuasca, are they? hmm yeah. Yeah, and in my particular, you know, like any tradition, there's various lines within a tradition. And so in the kind of sub-lineage It was a part of the tradition that focuses a lot on mediumistic practice, um, looks at through kind of experiential ceremonial inquiry, um, the way that Umbanda and Condomble come together in certain lines within the Santo Daimi. So I was in a fairly esoteric path. I was in a particularly esoteric subset and, yeah, spent a lot of time uh, engaged in that work.
0: What about you, Lucas? uh, Does spirituality take up as big a part of your life as it does of
1: (laughs) Terrence? My my spiritual path has been quite different. (laughs) You know, growing up in Pennsylvania, it's very um, Christian, uh, and obviously very like lots of different um, let's say concentrations. And um, so, because like the Amish are Christian and the Mennonites are Christian, so there's like a lot of interesting little iterations. I grew up Methodist and was full on into that. I really appreciated it. Found a lot of like spiritual growth through that, actually, because um, my, well, my uh, stepdad who I grew up with, he was Catholic, raised Catholics in the past, but, and so we had this really interesting mix of like, we'd do a lot of Catholic holidays and we'd always go to Methodist church though. So, um, but anyway, so this more sp- the, the spiritual growth that I got out of it was mostly through all these mission trips we used to do to appalachia through this group called um, ASP or Appalachian service Project and so we'd go and we'd fix and build houses for the you know lower lower um, income class and uh it was fantastic it was like it was a real spiritual cleansing for me every year when I went and I did that oh man, probably. I don't know, seven or eight years, like my formative years, you know? And um, oddly enough, that's sort of why I ended up leaving the organized religion behind because it was like, we got, we actually talked about this a little bit in one of our, I don't know if it was a conversation or a podcast at this point. It all sort of blends together. <laughs> but um, I think it was with Amishay, Lucas. Was it Amishay? Okay, cool. I think cool. so. We, we were talking about like dogmatic. You know how how religion can tend to be dogmatic, and you know once you sort of get sucked up into that, you sort of lose. Well, at least for me, my the way that I looked at it was you sort of losing the spiritual center, the spiritual grounding of it, and you're just sort of following blindly. And I, I found that to be true when we go on these amazing spiritual journeys and 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 um, you know meet these people who are opening up their their hearts and their homes and being very vulnerable to us and the people i would go with were uh you know not as flexible in their understanding of spirituality and um how we're meeting maybe meeting people where they are in their own spirituality and sort of seeing that they could they were there for a divine purpose to save people kind of thing and it was just like ugh, i'll put a bad taste in my mouth and though I really valued that sort of spiritual cleansing side of it and the the connection that you make with people on any level, that sort of soured the dogmatic and structural side of religion for me. And so I just, around that time, I think I was starting martial arts maybe, or pretty close around that time. I might have already started and um, I just dove deep into that like I made that sort of my world and you know through that sort of you know as I don't know if you know much about uh, martial arts specifically Chinese martial arts but once you get to a certain level it it, it it tends to bleed a bit in from like the philosophy to the physical you know we you embody basically the philosophy of um how the world works and you know um healing rather than harming and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I think it was a natural progression from that to where I am now, actually, because, um, you know, I just, I had more questions, more questions, more inquiries. And luckily I was able to find Chinese medicine, you know, and, and realize that it's, it could actually be a career, you know, but yeah, it's always been an interesting, spirituality has been always been an interesting through line in my life whether it's you know i'm diving deep into it it's driving the um, my driving my path or it's sort of just the undercurrent you know the 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 safety net do you know it's lurking (laughs) yeah
0: all right i'm going to come back to some more um philosophical questions but let's talk about the show a little bit more I got to know Amache a little through your chat with him. I, I already knew Brad and Bonnie pretty well. And I guess, I mean, this is a big question, but like, why these three people? Why are they your first three? And mm. what did you get out of it? Other than a good conversation, what do you take away from having talked to these three people?
2: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so deep. let's start with why. Mm. Yeah. Um, we... Recorded a number of conversations prior to releasing anything and kind of looked at them and thought about sound quality, conversational flow, potential interest, though it's a little hard to judge that because it's not like we have an audience, right? We're just, you know, throwing this stuff out there and hopefully some people are, other than our close friends, are going to eventually find it and enjoy it. But kind of in terms of the inquiry that Lucas and I have been engaged in for the past couple of years, uh, it felt to me, and I I think to Lucas as well, though I don't know that we ever explicitly said what I'm going to say next to each other, that these folks were, and then the fourth person who's going to be whose podcast conversation is gonna be released is my teacher, Tom Bizio. So that's gonna be focused more on internal martial arts and Chinese medicine and how those things intersect. So if you take the first month of folks, that it in a way touches on some of the broader themes in the inquiry that we kind of organically have been engaged in with each other. And that especially during the first year of the pandemic, kind of was like percolating out of the studies that we were doing because they started to range a little bit wider than they had in the past few years. So, you know, in terms of Brad's conversation about emergent philosophy, metamodernism, integral theory, metacrisis, you know, current events and their complexity, education, like these are all themes that, you know, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to you, because we're having this conversation that we've kind of been, you know, diving more deeply into and looking at from different angles in the past year. And then, you know, Amache, someone who whose focus in terms of working with activism and forgiveness and kind of like rooting their practice and their engagement with the world from a spiritual orientation is is pretty salient from I think both of our points of view and has a really interesting perspective as someone who is the first ordained openly intersex Jewish rabbi right like it's a truly unique point of view right that they they can bring to bear Um, and seems also timely given what's going on with movements in public discourse and understanding around the spectrum of gender right and then I mean Bonnie Roy is just Bonnie Roy right like she's just fucking awesome (laughs) and you know her her work has really really shaped a lot of my more recent thinking and inquiry um, intellectually and I appreciate so much how she brings spirituality philosophical inquiry and embodied practice together because like I don't in any way claim to do that at the level that Bonnie does but that is something that I seek to do in my own work and with the folks that I work with, um, you know, it's really kind of, as Lucas was talking about with studying Chinese martial arts that, you know, I'm, I, folks often talk about Chinese medicine as not acknowledging the mind-body split, but I actually think that doesn't nearly go far enough to articulate how radical the position or positionlessness of proto-Daoist, Orientation and perspective is to that because to say that you don't acknowledge the mind-body split actually already sets up an inherent dualism that isn't there, right? If you really go back far enough in various traditions, but certainly within you know the Neijing, it's it's not it's a it is a spectrum. So people think about yin and yang as these things. (laughs) First of all, they're not things, right? Mm -hmm. They're relational process and so if you if you objectify them if you thingify them mm-hmm. if you nominalize them you you're already so far out of the space that we're really seeking to rest in and move within from this kind of naging orientation like that you know there's no train there's no station right we're just not even there so we really want to um, look at those things as a processual and relational spectrum, right? So what is yin, relatively speaking, is more substantive and what is yang, relatively speaking, is less substantive. One is more structural, one is more functional, right? In terms of this movement, and there's an infinite number of ways that we can parse that, right? But it's not a split, it's that there is this way that we're somehow, you know, like my friend and teacher Mushtak Ali Al-Ansari might say that we're the field effect between form and consciousness, right? And so this yin-yang expression, right, which is, you know, Tom would talk about it as being this like multi-dimensional spiraling spherical thing. Like we see the Tai Chi too, the classic yin-yang tattoo that bazillions of people have on t-shirts and on their shoulders. And we think of it as flat, right, and static, but actually it's multi-dimensional, at least three, probably, you know, four to twelve dimensions of movement and nested within each other. And then the last piece that I think is super relevant to this, right, is that qi, which can be translated in a whole bunch of ways, mostly gets translated as breath or energy. And those are not at all inaccurate, but maybe not the most useful in terms of this particular line of inquiry. Because qi is also, you know, it's like our teacher Ed Neal would say, it's the, the fabric of space-time that the movements of yin and yang are expressed through. Or like our buddy Finbar would say, she is relationship, right? So if we're going to talk about this context that moves into process, that moves into relationship, right, that the transformative stage of understanding is the way that all of these things are going to interpenetrate and interplay you know, and express, right? Both in the, what we would think of as the unmanifest through to what we would think of as the manifest. Um, so. That's a pretty deep answer to the question.
0: Why did you pick <laughs> these three interviews? <laughs> right. <laughs> but I love, um, I love that distinction between thinking of yin and yang as two substantial things versus thinking of them as, substantializing and desubstantializing in a sense it reminds me of a years ago i was sitting at a strip club watching people watch the strippers thinking what's going on here because i thought these men wanted to see these naked women but as soon as the women take their clothes off they're sent away i'm like oh they want to watch women undressing they don't want to see undressed women so i'm like they want to see And I thought, oh, these guys built this strip club. They're creating form, and she's coming out and demonstrating the removal of the forms, and then she leaves. So I'm like, am I watching um, formlessness becoming form, looking at form becoming formlessness? (laughs) Is that what I'm (laughs) seeing here?
1: (laughs) That's the most uh, intelligent thought that's probably happened in a strip club, just so you know. All right, I give myself a
0: plus one for that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So what about in terms of um, what you guys took away from these um, three first talks? Sort of did you glean anything about the world for by talking to these people?
1: I'm I'm always I always feel like I'm, um, you know, the the one sort of stumbling behind and sort of like it takes me a minute to um, to really grasp what everyone's saying. A lot, especially for the first couple episodes, I'm not. Uh, very vocal and it's it's mainly because like i hope that i play a decent role in the podcast of being a representative of most of or at least a certain demographic of podcast listener who's who's like not quite on the par of you know well versed in the lexicon and like you know i've done my own sort of internal gazing and um you know mindfulness practice and consciousness studies and things like that, but I'm certainly not, I didn't, I didn't like study it very academically or necessarily parcel things out the way that they have. And so it's always interesting for me to just sort of be that one step behind sort of, you know, putting things together. So maybe it's also partially because I'm a sort of kinesthetic learner, but, um, you know, so for me it's always you know i'm just sort of like left floored at the end of each episode and just kind of like what just happened you know and then taryn and i have to decompress for an hour which my wife loves because then we have dinner at 11 but yeah i mean specifically the, the one through line i think is um it's the, all these conversations have really helped me to retrain or maybe like, they're like personal trainers for critical thinking for me. Do you know, like really trying to train uh, and challenge myself to broaden my perspective on something, whatever the subject may be, and look at it from a lot of different angles that i maybe hadn't done before, or just sort of step back and, and, and um, you know, st- step out of my reactive body and sort of just, you know, look at everything. And then obviously just be sort of floored by the presence of being for half of these people. It's just, they're just amazing. And I'm so thankful and blessed to have, have have had these conversations. It's just, I have no idea if I would ever meet half of these people. And so, you know, I'm so thankful for this medium and this opportunity, you know, so.
0: What goes on in these decompression sessions post-recording? How do <laughs> we you should probably record that?
1: those. What, is, what does it mean to unpack it afterwards? Some of it's, you know, uh, clarifying for me, clarifying certain concepts or like seeing if I um, actually tracked what we we're talking about. Some of it's just uh, like, you know, talking like with Amache, we talked about, you know, just the ramifications of this kind of work and how important that is. And especially right now, and like maybe even looking in you know, talking about looking into their organizations and yeah, just um, I think it's sort of emoting after the fact a lot of times and so that we can let everything that just um, transpired to just like settle into our tissue, you know? And then just yeah. have a good laugh because we couldn't, I don't know, actually half of them are we pretty, have, yeah, we have a lot of laughs during it, so. Yeah, I think
2: part of it is that those decompression sessions are mostly about <clears throat> how Lucas and I personally feel, right, and our our sort of more personal thoughts about mm-hmm. what just happened, yeah. which it's not that I don't, and I, you know, I think both of us do our absolute best to bring our full self to the conversation. But the goal of the conversation is not for me to tell people what I think and feel. It it may be useful at times, right? But the goal is to create a space where some kind of, you know, authentic, unique conversational experience can happen where when it's at its best, we're all learning something new, right? We're having an experience that we haven't had before. And that really, could never happen at any other time because it's this moment, these people, right? This particular instantiation of all of that. So it's just like an opportunity to like kind of cut loose and be like,
0: wow, that was so cool.
2: <laughs> yeah. you know, or Like, oh, this is, I loved this thing or like, oh, that makes me think of this, you know, in ways yeah. that maybe wouldn't really serve yeah. helping to foster that kind of space. And some of it is technical, like, Oh man, that fan. What are we going to do about that? You know, or like oh, like dude, your internet keeps dropping out, man. You got to call those guys. Um, so there's some of that too. And then there's just some like, you know, catching up or like, well, what are, the, what are our bullet points of the things that we need to do? Like, can you write those emails? Like, who, who who's on the schedule for next week? Like, so it's a combination of different things. Um, you know, some of which might be entertaining, most of which would be pretty boring for anyone. Yeah. <laughs> it's on I mean, the outside. I, I appreciate the technical stuff, and the uh, the other thing is interesting because
0: there's sort of a I don't know what it says on your Facebook exploring context and connection through conversational jazz, yeah. right? And that's not it's not anything goes. You have to be a certain way to be in that jazz performance. Right. So then you have this time to decompress afterwards and explore it as people. Right. But I'm curious about the jazz thing. Um, I did an interview a year or two ago with a guy named Greg Thomas. We talked about improvisation. He talked about it in jazz, and I talked about it in Mm neo-shamanism. And so I'm curious about its broader ramifications. Like, What do you think are the principles of jazz that are more broadly applicable?
2: Sure. Um, For the record, I am not a jazz musician. Um, I am somebody who spent a lot of time listening to a lot of live jazz. And as a dancer, I was primarily an improviser. And actually, uh, when I did theater that was more either physical theater or focused kind of more on acting, like the primary mode of performative exploration that I was involved in was improvisational. Um, So in some respects, the, the jazz thing is largely interpretive. Uh, based on someone who's not a practitioner of that art form. And I do want to cop to that. So we're borrowing in a a way that I hope can be understood to be with total respect and appreciation. So if if my understanding of what that means is off base and someone who is like Greg, whose work I really appreciate um, and didn't actually know about until after we had started using this conversational jazz thing in our own discourse. So it was kind of a cool zeitgeist moment where I was like, sweet. (laughs) Maybe we're on the right track, because other people are thinking about this, (laughs) granted from a much deeper and more grounded orientation in the art form. But I think that um, what I mean when I use that is that, so if I think about a a jazz musician, or if I think about anybody that's a really competent improviser, whether it's in neoshamanic neo shamanic or shamanic context, whether it's in a theatrical context you know, whether it's in a musical context. I mean, there's a performative aspect to all of these things we're talking about, um, which I, I know that some people that are involved in spiritual practice might take umbrage with, but I think it's really important to acknowledge that spiritual ceremony and theater, like same root, right, in terms of where they come from in human experience. And I think that's something personally to be celebrated, not, not to be um, uncomfortable with. But if you wanna do that well, you need to have some kind of understanding of the history of the medium, ideally a fairly decent one, maybe even a deep one. There are skills that one needs to have, both technical, right? And then also relational that one is going to have. Because, like, improvising by yourself, okay. But if you're going to improvise with other people, you have to have a sense for, you know, kinesthetic emotive, social, cognitive dynamics in that space and be comfortable enough with them that you don't have to be like thinking them through, right? In the moment that you can trust that in building your technical skills with your medium, right? And your interpersonal skills in terms of relationality that you can really get into a beginner's mind kind of listening space and trust that all of that work that you've done before you get to the improv space is going, like it's in you, right? And it's gonna come to bear in hopefully the most appropriate way in the moment, right? It's not to say that we don't need to keep training those skills. It's not to say that we don't need to sometimes be like, oh, we've hit a disharmonic patch and it's, I don't have Miles Davis's skill to play the next note that makes everything right. Like we need Mm -hmm. to do something to change this, but that we do our best to trust the changes that are naturally emerging out of the process that we're in and really be of service to that unfolding, right? Rather than trying to drive the bus too much. Mm -hmm. I'm mixing metaphors like like a madman, but it's (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, for me, and I think for us, when we talk about it being like jazz and specifically conversational jazz, is that we want, it's not totally formless, right? There is a Mm -hmm. structure to improvisation, But it's loose and we still don't know where it's going to go. And also the idea of riffing, right? Really like some of my favorite moments are when, you know, somebody has, they know a lot about a lot of things and we're not really talking about those things anymore. We're talking about stuff that maybe none of us really know that much about, but we're riffing on an idea that's arisen out of the moment. And that process of discovery that happens in, at least in my experience, the best improvisations again, where you like something truly unique, right? Even if you're talking about something maybe that many, many, many other people have talked about, you know, at greater depth or breadth, but there's some way that in this moment, something truly, you know, beautiful is emerging and we all get to discover that together, right? That for me, I think is at least currently, right? And this is also, it's an evolutionary and, changing process but currently that's kind of what i think of as the pocket right for for the kind of jazz that we're playing
1: yeah i think tyson's episode which i don't know when that's coming out but we we interviewed tyson young caporta recently and that was a perfect example of that because i was like freaking out i was like we got tyson this is really happening oh my god And uh, he and I were going back and forth. We read his book. We reread his book. I was taking notes. I had all this like stuff ready. I wasn't like, it was the most I had prepared, I think for an interview. I didn't have specific like questions in mind, but I had like, you know, solidified some things or like I had ideas I wanted to throw at him. I even had like passages from the Neijing that I wanted to like read to him and see what he thought, you know? And then, you know true to form just like any other performance you know you get to the gig and like you're thrown off your game because the the, the performance before you went long and like now you got to reframe your whole set and you're like oh crap and then you get up there and you forgot the connector to your amplifier and then like oh my god i can't how are we going to play and then so for us it was that tyson's video wasn't working so we're like oh no we're so used to the video can we do this without it? And like. His laugh was so infectious that it was like, oh yeah, here we go, no worries, and we just went, and like I didn't even have a chance to reference my notes, you know. There were pregnant pauses here and there, or, but it was just like
2: even <laughs> to do an introduction, and we just like it was oh, yeah, one we of those times, <laughs> like where it just it was full tilt from the drop. You yeah, know?
1: yeah, I'm so glad at the end, you know. Taryn was like, oh yeah, did you want to do your your intro? I'm sorry, we've you know, and he's like, oh well, thank you, but eh, we're good. <laughs> That was a good. Yeah. One. My
0: experience is just like that. Like I, I'm kind of allergic to introductions, and mm-hmm. I'm sort of always painfully aware where I'm like, oh, I've got to sort of keep my questions on theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. At the same time, I know it's different for different guests. Some people really need and appreciate that structure. Other people can go into that space with you a little more. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I think there's a neat. I mean. Meta level thinking and improvisation have a lot in common that hasn't been fully inspected. I think by yeah. a lot of people, because there's the unfolding and changing and emergent thing. And mm-hmm. there's the way of going meta on what seems like a disruption and then folding mm-hmm. it back in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, hmm, I feel like there was some third thing I wanted to say, but it's gone now.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're so, oh, no, stuck- it was this,
0: okay. it was the, uh, Uh, And I think Greg and I talked about this, the similarity between the both and integral Mm -hmm. thinking that Brad was discussing Mm -hmm. and the yes and principle in learning improvisational interactions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. I'm going to switch tactic completely and ask a really abstract question. Great. Let's do it. (laughs) Um. You know, sort of a Taoism is behind a lot of the martial arts and healing systems that come out of Asia. Uh, but everybody has slightly different takes on what that means. Mm. And I'm curious what you guys see or appreciate in the Taoist mode of understanding that you think a lot of other Taoists
2: might not agree with. So, <clears throat> to question. the second part of the question, I wouldn't want to presume to say what other Taoists might or might not agree with it's like any big field people have lots and lots of different points of view I would say that there is some level of um either orness within folks that either Taoism is a religion or Taoism is a philosophical system and people often are like at odds and you know these guys or gals think that these people are wrong. And these people think that these people are wrong. So I stay entirely out of that fray. It's, it is, I say this with total respect, completely an uninteresting conversation to me, right? Mm -hmm. Because, because both end, right? Because, you know, everything has a trajectory of growth. And at some point, for sure, it wasn't a religion because at some point it wasn't Taoism. It was just, a variety of different points of view that eventually started to coalesce into something that then certainly became a religion because we have a Taoist religion today. And at the same time, there's other ways of orienting to that information. Um, in and of itself, this thing would piss a lot of people off that I just said, right? but nonetheless, I, th- I think for me at least, the things that are super salient to the way that taoist or these days i kind of been thinking of it more as proto daoist mm-hmm. possibly to st- even remove myself further from this either or ness of that particular are we a religion or a philosophy conversation are some of the dynamics that i was talking about in answer to the question about like you know why did we have these people come on first right so that there is a So I'm going to take a slightly different tack with this <clears throat> one, of, one of the um. one of the things that happened during the pandemic when I started getting back into exploring theory and meta theory and kind of like general geeky noosphere kinds of discourse, kind of like what we're having, right, you know, uh, on the Internet and like going back and starting to read Some Western philosophy again, is that um, especially in the discourse on the internet, like there's all of this like conversation about complex system science and the meta crisis and you know, sense making and these things are great. I love them. But nowhere, except every now and then with Bonnie, did I hear about anything that related to Taoism or Chinese medical theory. Now, that may not be because that's not happening, right? It may just be observer bias, but I was casting my net fairly wide. And so my sense as somebody who's pretty steeped in that orientation is like, wow, I think of an aging orientation to Chinese medical practice as being some super old complexity thinking um, and embodiment practice and I'm surprised on one level that this isn't part of this conversation. I feel like it's a totally resonant dance partner, you know, for all of this. And so I did a little bit of attempting to facilitate some conversations between some of my teachers and some folks who I was, thought were doing really cool work and basically nobody bid. And I was like, oh, well, even though I don't know that I feel qualified to be the person having these conversations, maybe that's on me. So I just sort of sat with that. And so I, th- I think that what's really useful about this orientation, right, is that there is an embodied relationship to the aspect of reality that is in constant flux, right, with an acknowledgement at the same time that there's a deeper level that seems to be still, and that there's a deeper level that seems to somehow be moving stillness right or dynamic stillness right and that it takes it you know none of those ideas are unique to a Taoist orientation but there's a way that because in many traditions those things i think get transcendentalized right that in the Taoist project it often gets brought into the body and into embodied experience through practice in a way that I think gives rise to some of the really cool stuff that can happen in Chinese medical practice in Chinese martial arts, especially the internal martial arts, and then in philosophical discourse. So again, we have this kind of mind, body spirit not not broken apart, right? Spectrumized. And that that for me has a lot of inherent practical utility and beauty and goodness. In terms of day-to-day life, so I don't know that anybody would agree or disagree with that, right? But that would be the way that I orient to how to how that's relevant. Yeah, thank you.
1: Sure. What about you, Lucas? Anything on that? I mean, Taryn is always the 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 one who I feel. Um, it's much better with his words, but also its like intellectualize these things to a point where I, I haven't even begun to inquire i I feel like I've very much like in more steeped into the somatic you know what does tyson like to call it the um hepatic no the what's the word hepatic no. uh um
2: haptic, haptic. Yeah, cognition is what you're thinking yeah. of sorry yeah not not yeah. liver thinking <laughs> right,
1: right yeah there's a lot of terms swimming around here yeah the haptic uh cognition kind of side of it which is really fascinating yeah
0: this is uh, uh two things came up for me the first is the phrase proto-daoism makes me think of like primitive ancient taoism and when i was a kid probably my favorite passage in the Dao Da Ching, And I know translations differ, but there's a section where Lao Tzu says, today, nobody remembers the ancient sages. So I'll tell you what they're like. They were like guys trying to cross a frozen river who didn't know how thick the ice was, right? And that made a lot of sense to me when I had to cross a frozen river, but I thought, you're an ancient sage. Like, mm-hmm. who do you think the ancient sages were? Who were these people who no one remembers anymore when Lao Tzu was alive? Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that's proto-Daoism for me. I I often think about what the prehistorical Buddhas might have been like and what their practices were before any of our traditions arose. Mm -hmm. That excites me a lot. Another thing I thought of was, um, I don't know if you know Lonnie Jarrett. Um, I did a long interview with him about he's maybe the leading guy trying to bring traditional Chinese medicine and integral theory together. He's got a couple of books on that. Uh, And one of the things, uh, obviously, there's some things he thinks traditional Chinese medicine and advanced folk medicine around the world can add to these meta level systems. Part of that's an emphasis on the body and health balance and maybe building a better typology Mm -hmm. is part of that. But one of the things he thinks these new systems can add to the traditional model is evolution and change and emergence and the future, because a lot of the classic ways of thinking are are circular they're a return to um, a flowing homeostasis in a kind of our our ancestors seem like they conceived of the world as not changing too much and the new systems of thought we've come up with in the last couple of hundred years ago you no know, it's it's really been changing a lot and we expect to see radically new things coming up over the horizon so how do you guys balance that sense of, you know, you know the classic known universe returning or not to balance, and this sort of new universe that's exploding into some kind of surprises and changes we're barely ready for.
1: So, our teacher has a really interesting. Well, one of our teachers, because clearly we have many, but Ed Neal talks a fairly a fair amount about this, especially recently. Um, I don't know if Taryn you're about to talk about this or not, but like I don't know. I would say, given the if you look at it from the framework of, like, the... Forgive me, I always think of Susan Lucci, mm-hmm. but it's the Wu-Yin Liu-Chi. <laughs> it's the, uh, basically the turnings of the stars and all that. Yeah, I don't know that I would say that it's... In our, in our terrestrial realm, it seems quixotic and changed, changing very fast, and you don't know what's around the corner, but celestially, I don't know that it's anything surprising per se like it's um it's just some things that we may not um be able to predict at this point like if you're looking like if you take like if you do a, a really giant sort of broad spec broad perspective botza of like wherever you are you, you'll you probably see, like if you do it over a couple thousand years, you'll probably see some pretty dramatic things happening. You know, stars are born, stars are dying. And stars are inter- interplaying in certain ways that cause crazy things to happen on any sort of one given terrestrial uh, localization. But like in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty, you know, it's just a push and pull in general. So, um. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy for, I always, like recently, I've been thinking about a lot about this, especially since the pandemic. Everything seems so crazy and dangerous and, and, and um, immediate for us uh, from a human perspective. But that's a very arrogant human perspective. It's like, you know, the world is just doing what it's doing. The stars are doing what they're doing. They don't care about us. <laughs> You know heck the plants don't particularly care about us the sky doesn't care about us right we're just like little chicken littles all over here like oh my gosh my world is changing i won't have my like youtube that i can you know stream like 24 7 because like global warming's happening and you know like cities might be underwater you know in, in the near future and like you know climate's change it you know it, it's um I guess it, for us, it's very dramatic, but on a diff, from a different perspective, I don't know that it's really that different or dramatic.
2: Yeah, I also, I don't know that I agree with Lonnie's premise that the ancient perspective is that, so I do agree, and I, I would be, you know, I wouldn't know what I was talking about if I said I didn't agree with the notion that there is a, a cyclical, uh, padronal kind of like, expression to that. But where I think I diverge pretty strongly is that my reading and experience both in terms of embodied practice and contemplation, which I'm going to tease apart a little bit here, right, even though I think that they're very much interpenetrating, is not that things aren't evolving and changing. There are cyclic patterns, right? But those cyclic patterns, you know, on the scale that Lucas is talking about are still composed, right? Of that same multidimensional, interpenetrating, you know, Tai Chi too, that is at least four dimensions, right? Where everything is transforming into everything else that the breath motion of the universe to give another nod to our teacher Ed, right? Where there's this kind of moving expansion and then consolidation, right? That this that is a pattern, but then that expresses in all these different ways. And it is iterating, right? Somehow, you know, while we see, like a pattern doesn't mean that things are exactly the same. And even in a pattern of inhale and exhale, there's different length, there's different volume, there's different, you know, other kinds of qualitative aspects to that that are constantly shifting. We can think about like in a Western physiological context our understanding of heart rate variability, right? That a healthy heart, that the beats are, are actually not all the same time, right? The duration is changing and that's an expression of health. So I would, I would kind of lean more into, yes, there are patterns and it's really helpful to understand those patterns and those cycles. The sun does appear to rise and set. We know that's not exactly what's happening, but nonetheless, we have night and day currently, right? But at some point, the sun will explode and there won't be night and day. There won't even be an earth, right? So clearly on another level, there is like really radical change that's happening. So I, you know, I don't, I'm not saying that meta models might not have a great way of helping us. Um, refine our understanding of that dynamic within this, but I would dispute that that's not spoken to in the classics, um, you know, like in the Shwanza, uh, in the Neijing, you know, in the Dao De Ching, right, even in the Analects, right? Um, you know, I'm less familiar with the Moza, but I know that it's, it's in there too. So I just, I don't, I don't know that that's my interpretation of the, the root of the tradition, at least as i've experienced it both you know in terms of as a practitioner of internal martial arts and you know like self cultivation practices and somebody who has studied a decent amount i'm by no means one of these like scholar physicians there's plenty of people that can trounce me in that arena but i feel like i have done enough work that i can say what i'm saying without feeling like i'm totally inventing it like it's grounded in in textual research if that makes sense
0: As a team, that's a fantastic answer you guys gave, because I feel like Lucas said, hey, things that appear to be changing and complex and novel locally might actually be part of much larger regular cycles. And you're like, yeah, all regular cycles contain a lot of novelty and surprise and change within Mm
1: -hmm. them. We make a good team. (laughs) I
0: I probably um, exaggerated the emphasis of Lonnie's opinion a little bit, because and you know, uh, I bring him up because he might be a perfect guy for you guys to talk to. Oh, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think one of the things I find I do a lot in these discussions because of the caliber of the people I'm dealing with mm-hmm. is I can say, which of these two things and they're impossible choices <laughs> right. that I allow the, the interviewee to say, well, I don't think they're two different things. Say yes. in some various. Right. Form. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh,
2: I listen to I have not had the opportunity to dig super deeply into your incredibly broad and deep body of work, Lehman, but in prep for this conversation, I listened to the first couple of metamodel talks, and I re- am remembering the Zen teaching story that you told about, like, Master comes in from the backyard, and he's like... <laughs> I have found the one place where omniscience exists or non exists Omnipresence, yeah. <laughs> Omnipresence. Thank you. I was like, I'm getting it wrong. But that is what I'm, I'm thinking of as you talk about this, that dynamic tension between two things that are, what's the Fitzgerald quote, right? That the sign of a fine mind is the ability to hold two seemingly opposing ideas at the same time without going mad, mm-hmm. Paraphrase. I think that's what the,
0: um, you know, the ore complexity systems of the ancient world And the new meta thinking have a lot of that in common, which is Mm -hmm. they're trying to use paradox as a coherent form of approaching reality.
2: Yeah. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Let's talk about chi for a minute or subtle energy generally or something like that, because I've grown up around healer practitioners all my life. And I know a lot of them are reticent to engage in abstract speculation. They just go, it works. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) fine. Uh, But I'm always curious. And um, (laughs) like, what's your take on chi? Is it an energy? Is it a set of energies? Is it a metaphor for healthy functioning? Is it a way of discussing ordinary natural science, bioelectricity? or is it a whole other kind of energy entirely?
1: The short answer is yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
2: We'll leave it there. Um, <laughs> so the thing, right, and I, I kind of gestured at this a little bit earlier in the conversation, I think, is that it, it has a lot of different meanings. And so that's why yes is both the short answer and the long answer to this. You know one of the definitions of qi that we mentioned earlier was that it's the fabric of space-time that the movements of yin and yang are expressed on. And Ed would say that that in the study of classical Chinese medicine, um, you want to find the primary, like the root definition of a term, and then there'll be like all these other definitions that are branch definitions. And so his point of view is that in the Neijing, that's the root definition, right? Which is not one that most people in the world of certainly, people in the world of TCM, which to be clear is a different uh, phenomenon, entity, orientation than classical Chinese medicine, um, and classical Chinese medicine has a bunch of sort of different orientations. But that's not a that's a fairly radical stance to take. Though I actually think it's super right on personally. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that mostly when folks use Chi, there is a lot of like confusion around what it means. And so like in an internal martial arts context and a self-cultivation context, it's gonna have a set of meanings, which is more I think in the subtle energy, you know, dynamic movement, right? That happens in the internal that maybe most of us can't see or perceive unless we've done a fair amount of work to settle enough that we can start to perceive those, those subtler movements, but you know, qi can also be issued right, and knock a person across the room if someone has cultivated themselves enough. So it, it's not entirely without some kind of expression in the material world, <clears throat> or at least the apparently material world. I think in the practice of Chinese medicine in the clinic, again, it has, there's a lot of different kinds of qi. Right, there's Shen Qi and Guan Qi, and um, you know, there's gonna be Chi chi, Che chi, there's gonna be nutritive chi, there's like all of these different things. Thank you for rescuing me from my <laughs> Chinese flying. <laughs> I out was of my thinking ear. about it too, yeah. Um, you know, and all of those things are really different kinds of phenomena. Again, some are gonna be more substantive, and some are gonna be less substantive. Um, You know, and I think that the other thing, too, is that often people will frame Chinese medical practice and theory as being energetic medicine, Um, to which my general reply is, sure, just like we live in an energetic physical world, right? Like at the fundament, things are energy that's moving in different sort of oscillatory rhythms and patterns. But at least in the way that Lucas and I are oriented to practicing Chinese medicine, like we're seeking to create change in the structure as well. So it's not just like energy in the the sense of within my imaginal visionary space, I perceive these subtle flows, right? Like sure, that's more in the kind of like microcosmic orbit nadon orientation, but there's also a like, we're talking about patterns that can be perceived. You know, again, they are rhythms there, they have like an oscillatory nature, they have a, often a kind of a wave-like structure. So we then frequently take that energy metaphor and kind of run with it because these are also things that we would use, words we would use generally to talk about energy. Um, but I think most of the time, at least in the way that I'm practicing, um, energy is actually more of a metaphor, right? To talk about the kinds of processes in the body, right? That do have some structural f- or fluid dynamical, um, aspect that we're seeking to change so that those systems come into greater coherence. And then the thing that we see, right, is that people feel better and are healthier you know, this is like one of those questions and conversations where we could probably spend three or four hours talking about all of the different (laughs) kinds and perspectives and somebody else could probably spend their own three or four hours offering their own points of view. So like big salt mine of like, Hey, this is just (laughs) how I orient to this question. And, you know, it's, it, uh, I feel like, I don't know if you guys ever studied Talmud or know people that studied Talmud, but this kind of like lots of questions and everybody disagreeing, including people disagreeing with themselves. I grew up a little bit in that world. And so studying Chinese medicine doesn't feel unfamiliar because similarly, you know, it's just like, well, it's like this. Oh, it's exactly the opposite. Oh, it's, it's orthogonal to that. Right. So that's kind of what I would offer. I appreciate
0: you folded all the options I gave into your answer. <laughs> um, what about you, Lucas? When you think of chi, what is it that you think of?
1: It's. I think we've been on a similar experience, actually. And I wonder if, and this happens quite often through the history of Chinese medicine, I wonder if at some point we just, we started taking liberties with the term, you know, Um, it maybe it started out as the idea that it's the fabric of space-time. And then maybe to maybe it was used in a context of like trying to explain something to a a student or something. And it's like, no, you, you can sort of feel that movement of uh, this particular fabric, like so, the chi within the skin, or something, or chi within the blood, or chi, you know, you can feel that movement when you take the pulse, or when you're palpating, or something like that. And then, so I think, then it gets a little bit, um, only in only in concept, only in uh, in its sort of meta analysis of like holding that image of that it this is fabric of space time, which. As long as you bring it back, I think it's fine. It doesn't particularly matter. But if you don't, then I do think it becomes problematic and then that's when we start to lose a little bit of credibility. I don't I don't disagree that it it can be viewed as bioelectricity. Though, like I said, I I don't know I, I hesitate to even call it that especially when I'm in the clinic because it, it pigeonholes it a bit. And and I don't think that's healthy. But yeah, I, I think it's helpful. Uh, Nigel, we've, Nigel Dawes, one of my teachers um, who we'll have later this month. Yeah, later this month. He often tries to frame, especially in the clinic, tries to frame it in terms of physics. He's like, you know, Western medicine is, uh, is biology and Chinese medicine is a bit more physics. If you think about forces interacting and uh, on each other, then it's a little bit more. It becomes a little bit more tangible for you. You know, if you think about, there are certain basic principles that we all have to adhere to. We all have to understand in order to accept a premise or accept that, you know, a diagnosis. You know, and I find that to be really helpful because it like. I, so I have all these, mil- like you know, you're saying were saying, there's a million different things running around in my head, different examples. And like I said, we could nerd, a- nerd out about this for hours and hours. But I think um, the concept of xiechi really is, is, embodies this pretty well. Because Chi is, we sometimes um, translate it as pathogenic chi, <clears throat> but that gives it a connotation of being sort of malevolent or evil. Right. But it really is just an environmental, and I'm using that loosely an environmental influence that can enter your body where you're not embodying yourself, where you're not, uh, how do I say, like fully inhabiting yourself? There you go. Thank you. Fully inhabiting yourself, you know. And so, you know, it has no agenda. So, you know, is it is it a virus? Is it a germ? Is it you know dirt? Is it you know um, wind? Is it rain? Is it it? Yes, it's all these things. You know, it has, and it's just a sort of part of our environment. It's it could even be ill intent. It could be harsh words, something like that. But <clears throat> but it's it's not um, like I said. It doesn't have any sort of you know, agenda per se. It's just, if you're not embodying yourself, then it can um, cause malady, you know, anyway. Thank you. Hmm.
0: I made a couple of notes about your Spotify blurb and I'll deal with the trivial one first. it, It says something like, where's my note here? From complexity theory to music appreciation, from Chinese medicine to social justice and forgiveness practices, we run the gambit. Now, the first thing I want to say is, I think maybe you mean gamut rather than gambit. (laughs) A gamut is like a range of open-ended options, and a gambit is like a magician uses. And I've often got them confused, and that's why it's on standby in my mind. (laughs) Good note. Thank you. On the other hand, maybe it's a clever, I don't know, maybe it's a clever thing. Um, The other thing I'm always, I noticed the social justice and forgiveness practices are in there. And I wonder what you're taking, like, what are you thinking when you think of forgiveness practices? And what do you think the relevance is to individual health? But also, what do you think the relevance is to social health?
1: Well, I mean, we, uh, one of the reasons why we put that in was because we had the conversation with Amache before we wrote that. And um, that's what a, a predominant focus of their work is. But also, um, I think to a certain degree, Noor, Kyle George, and Mushak um, Ali Al Ansari, their work in the Nine Sided Circle deals with that a lot too. I think rectifying issues within yourself, then being able to um, do that work, the forgiveness work, but still doing forgiveness work in general. Oh. In terms of what we need to do now, my God. I mean, that's a, uh, there's so much to talk about with that. God, what are take? I, I just, saw, I'm not even sure where to start with that. <laughs> so, I the first thing I would say
2: about that Spotify blurb is that I think maybe it's time for us to change that and have it be less specific. Mm. Um, I think it was really a great first pass, and I, I think it's at least from my vantage point, it's more useful for us at this point to just talk in the broadest terms about what we're doing rather than gambits or gamuts um, about the kinds of topics, because the the range is like, we would just have a laundry list of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's just my my critique of us, right? It's like, okay, sounds like maybe we're at the moment where we might want to look at making that looser. So I think on a individual level that i'm pausing because there's a few different ways that i can that i'm considering moving forward with this so in my experience right and my observation of myself and of other folks um and, and this, this the the caveat in the context of this is i am not telling anybody else that they should go forgive this person or that person or work in any particular way i'm not suggesting that if someone has been harmed that anywhere that they might be in relationship to their experience is problematic or is not right for them in their own personal healing process so just because what I'm going to say next is going to probably sound like I'm saying the exact opposite of that. But it is my observation and my experience that when we are in an internal relationship to a person, a group, a set of dynamics, ourself, where we have We're holding on, we're gripping the wrong of whatever that is in such a way that we create this dualism where, like, I'm either the victim or I'm in the right, and this other, you know, is the perpetrator. All we're doing is keeping ourselves chained to that person or process or group uh, and within a prison of our own making. And so from my vantage point, forgiveness is fundamentally about liberation. And for a certain kind of dynamic within my own being, forgiveness is actually the liberative key for those kinds of dynamics, right? Um, Now, I can't fake it, right? There is the like, okay, I can imagine myself doing this and I might imagine myself doing it until it really grounds in my being. But at the same time, like, the reason I started by saying no matter where anybody, including myself, is in a process, like, I can't just, because it's the right thing to do, forgive this person if they, if I'm not ready to. At the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that whether I'm ready or not, that other dynamic of being, you know, chained to uh, and locked into this kind of like, you know, essentially, again, prison of my own making that is not allowing me to really, my being to fully breathe and um, move with the changes of the universe is also true, right? So I think that it behooves me and anybody for who this is remotely resonant with to work within my own experience and experiences to get to a place with the things that I might be chained to and orienting to in such a way where I might need to forgive or ask forgiveness of, or forgive myself so that I can allow this dynamic to essentially dissolve so that I have a greater liberative space to move into and within. I believe that if we all can have a willingness to do that kind of work within ourselves, that there is the potential for great social transformation. I don't pretend to have any idea how that really happens on a bigger level. And I think that there are lots of people seeking to work in that space. Um, Amache being one of them who we, you know, you can listen to our conversation with them and see what their take is on that. Um, I don't, I don't think that. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know currently where that work is happening on a bigger level in a way that I really understand. Now that is probably a, a lack of my own exposure to people that are doing that work. But like, I would love to at this point direct folks. Like, and if you're curious about that, other than Amache, you know, go check out all these projects. Like these amazing people. But I, I don't know that. You know, I have in the work that I've done been more focused kind of on myself and people that I'm in direct and immediate contact with. Um, so I think sometimes making amends is a big part of forgiveness, but I really do think it starts inside each one of us and that it, it has to be a process that we can cultivate, but also has to organically unfold. It can't be forced, but I do think it is incredibly important.
1: Anything you want to add Lucas? I think there's a an, an important component right now to um obviously doing the self work first but you know sort of forgiving uh humanity for getting ourselves to this current state you know forgiving our transgressions such as like you know, killing off all certain species that are no longer on this earth and being plant or animal, um, making all these crazy changes to our environment and you know all the certain different um, social atrocities we've done to ourselves. I think it's helpful to start there as well. Once you've gotten to a place where you are, um, you've done the work within yourself, you, forgiven yourself and you're able to open up to that space because I look at people like um, Greta Thunberg who is a wonderful amazing person an inspiration to me and um, I just see this anger in in her eyes and in her voice every time she speaks publicly and and I appreciate it and I think it's absolutely necessary I think it's the only thing that's going to motivate all these old people in government, but there, there has to be at some point there has to, or maybe even at the same time, there has to be a sort of forgiveness work as well. as we move forward. Um, Cause I really think that that's how we will we'll make more lasting and effective change and make a society that's actually works for us, you know, what form that'll take I don't know (laughs) but I'm excited that we're on the cusp of something really uh, intense and um, possibly amazing so what is with all the wood behind you oh (laughs) I am (laughs) man I am always in the middle of a project always this is like reclaimed wood from my buddy's coffee shop that had to close regrettably but it's like reclaimed some special kind of oak from like washington state that some guy gave to him because he, like he donated it for him first anyway i don't know what i'm doing with it yet but it's better than just a green wall <laughs> i don't know actually that's just storage really to be honest <laughs> i
0: like it i i love wood i grew up rural. Right my dad carved and sculpted sometimes oh cool uh,
1: I, oh, it's just a nice thing to have on hand, even if you don't yeah. know what
0: you're going to do with it yet.
1: I have a closet full of it. <laughs> I live in New York City. I shouldn't have just leftover wood laying around, but such is, such is my life right now. What, um,
0: uh, what podcasts or YouTube channels or things do you guys tune into? You know, What do you find yourself looking for in terms of both content and aesthetics?
1: We're, I mean, we're. I think we're chewing on a lot of the same things. We recently just dove deep into Tyson's new podcast because I feel like he just dropped it and he's just like pumping them out, and it's all awesome. That's Tyson and the other others yeah. on Spotify as well. Um, what else am I diving into? I, as as much as as abrasive as he is, sometimes I really dearly love him jim rutt is oh man that guy he's got an amazing mind and when he nerds out and he goes deep i mean he loses me sometimes but oh my gosh he just had a yarn with uh tyson on tyson's podcast that was so interesting so intense and i still i have to do research and i think that's what's really fun about a lot of these podcasts that we listen to is that it it sends me down a rabbit hole you know and'm I'm, I'm excited about it do you know' like okay I have to understand what kind of experiment they're actually talking about do you know or um, I've never heard of this theory I got to check this out or you know but yeah those two, who else Taryn I mean you're a, you're big fans of the stoA yeah I'm a big fan of the STOA. I would say that in
2: terms of um, antecedents complexity podcast, Geological, geological our friend and colleague, Michael Max, it's a um, podcast that is by and for folks that are practicing clinicians of traditional East Asian medicine. I mean, lots of students too, but, and I'm sure there's folks that have nothing to do with the field, but it's really geared towards people in the field. So Michael Garfield's work, when his own podcast, Future Fossils, and, um, JF Martel and Phil Ford's Weird Studies and the Stoa. I would say that those are the kind of like the suite of things that I um, listened to as I was kind of like beginning to have these ideas that I thought that this space was really cool. And it didn't occur to me to participate, right? But those were like, it's a pretty broad range of different orientations. And then the other thing too, which is not really a pod, but Mushtaq Ali Ansari's Sunday talks within the nine-sided circle. Um, So prior to the pandemic, uh, so I I am a single dad and I am now a homeschooling single dad. Um, When my daughter was in school, had considerably more hours that you know driving to and from school, various things, where I was listening to a lot more things than I have time to listen to today. But that less in terms of format, but more in terms of you know Mushtaq's perspective, and we have a conversation with him that'll be out in a while, you know, sort of Sufi rooted, fourth way oriented enneagram of process, really interesting work if that kind of thing gets you going, which gets me going. Um, so I would say that all of those things are the like the influences that maybe not in a way that I can point to, like this came from here and this came from there, but are the things that have influenced my approach to how we're working in this space. Um,
1: Yeah, I gotta say. I should just say this (laughs) like
2: a second and a third time though, because (laughs) (laughs) there's so much work that I got exposed to thanks to Peter Lindbergh's Herculean effort to get everybody and all of their yeah. relatives to like, somehow all be in that space. Some of which I might never have known about um, really, maybe even a, a goodly number of things that have really been instrumental in, in kind of like shaping my thinking in the past year and a half. Um, so,
1: yeah, Yeah, I would say, I think what's key for me in a podcast diet is making sure that you know you, you dive deep in 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 things like Santa Fe Institute's complex complexity podcast and like teasing your brain and then having something that's like from a completely different perspective. Like um, I, I listen to um, I don't know if you know the guys from Pod Save America, but um, One of the guys, uh, John Lovett, he has his own podcast and it's very much interview style, um, but he has a lot of fun with it. He plays a lot of games and, but then he always has really, really good conversations with people. And so it's really, it's, I think it's helpful for me to um, see how you can come up with all the things you can do with the medium, right? right? So it can be, Within one episode, that maybe even only, only twenty-five minutes, it can be something that's uh, inquisitive and interesting and makes you challenge the way you're thinking about things, but also can be really fun and funny. So even listening to like Dana Carvey's podcast, which is insane—I <laughs> don't know if you've listened to it yet. It just came out. It's called Fantastic, but and it, at some points because he's just off the chain, he doesn't rein himself in whatsoever, and it's like if you like Dana Carvey, great and i do i really love him but even i'm like whoa okay we gotta somebody's gotta give him like somebody's gotta like have an edit button for him um or just rein him in but he goes off and then he he recognizes that he went back went a little bit too far but um it it it, it all adds how it's it's all sort of like ingredients to what we do in some ways because it's all you know the i appreciate the production value of love it or leave it and Jim Rutt. Jim Rutt does not mess around with his quality. It's like top notch. And, but I appreciate the off the cuff and just grab, just hit record and let's just go with Tyson. Tyson yeah. just like, let's just get something on tape. And then I'm just going to put it out because I don't have the capacity for editing and all that crap or the, the desire. Or like, um, you know, the intense preparation for a a podcast like the complexity podcast, you know, all those things like you really do form what I think of my perspective on how to, what, what content do I want? What content do I want to create? um, What's interesting to me? Like would I listen to my own podcast, I would, I have thousands, you know, hundreds of times at this point, but uh, that's the sad part about editing. You just get to hear everything so many times. But I'm still interested in it. And I also, which is really interesting, and it kind of surprises me nowadays, is when I'm going back and editing, I'm hearing new things, which is really interesting. But if I had to nail it down, the most important things for me are basic production value. I absolutely need a minimum production value. <laughs> like I can't, it, it can't be you in a tin can, in a tin box, like on you, on your computer speakers. I can't handle it you got to raise the game. But after that, just, you know, the genuineness of it, something spontaneous, something, you know, are you interested in it? Is the, is the guest engaged? And then, I mean, that's really it, you know, because then you have something really special.
2: I love that answer, Lucas. That's great. (laughs) I think, I think that's really, really well well expressed and i also want to add jim rutt and tyson's the other others in there because i should mention them even though somewhat later in the game in terms of where they came into that equation definitely like hugely impactful for lots of reasons yeah yeah for me there's sort of uh, i don't know maybe three zones like there's stuff
0: i just like because of who i am or that i want to learn about and then there's stuff where I'm like, I feel like it's telling me something about the medium itself. Mm. And then there's this collection of overlapping communities. Like, mm-hmm. um, I had a conversation with Peter Lindbergh last week and I said, listen, half of the people I talked to were just on the STOA and they're going to be on Jim Rutt next week. <laughs> right. We're obviously there's some incestuous <laughs> thing going on here. Right. right, right. Like Right. You guys talked to Brad. I talked to Brad. Jim talked to Brad. I've talked to Jim a couple of times. Yeah, so there's, cool. there's something forming here—a particular set of people and exchanges and attitudes that I think could be really important going forward. And 100. Uh, I think you guys are doing great. I think it's fun. It's interesting. It's smart. Sounds like nice conversations when you do it. So that well, means the world. You Thank,
2: <laughs> Thank you man. so much. Thank really appreciate you taking that. the time. Yeah. It's been great talking to you.